my daughter saw me making the uh, special population slides, and she said, uh, what are you talking about? All populations are special. So, <laughs> yes. All pigs are equal. Some pigs are more equal than others. So I'm just going to interesting time to skip through a bit. So the first thing to, to bear in mind about genotypes two and three is they make up about a quarter of the population here. I just got back from trips to Mongolia, Vietnam, Cambodia, and it can range uh, to as high as you know, 30, in uh, some places 60%, depending on the region where you are. Uh, genotype 5 in parts of Vietnam were, uh, you know, 50, 60%. So tremendous differences. Australia and New Zealand genotype 3 is about a third of it. And that's why these genotype 3 and 2 studies initially came out of uh, New Zealand, where uh, Ed Gain did these studies. So I'm going to skip the question, just because we're going to go through it in the interest of time. One of the things from Brett genotype, it actually gives worse disease. No one really understands the mechanism. Uh, it may be because genotype 3 is unique in that it uh, causes steatosis, and you probably get some lipotoxicity with it too, so you probably not only get uh, the effects of the virus itself, uh, but you have the secondary effects on lipid metabolism that seems to be specific to genotype 3. So they do worse, probably a higher priority to treat uh, on that basis. This is what we used to have. This is an important slide. Uh, like Michael, I don't like showing uh, result slides too much, but this is important because this is what the phase three study showed. You know, so soft ribavirin, 24 weeks, nearly everyone got cured. Goes out into the real world with dozens of academic and non-academic centers, 58%. Okay, a really steep drop-off, and that's what we were seeing. And if you look at experienced patients, it's the same thing. You're 90% down to 44%. So something about real-world patients uh, is different. Maybe it's the, uh, the ribavirin. No one really understands this, but it, this was not a small number of patients, nearly 100 uh, real-world patients uh, in, this, in this study. Now, I had a patient uh, recently who I wrote for uh, soft valpatosphere for genotype 3. And the prior auth came back as refused. They said, well, we'll give you soft lodiposphere. I thought, that makes no sense. It's not one of the recommendations. I sit on the panel. How can you possibly tell me what to do? And it was, you know, <laughs> it didn't get anywhere. It's really, but it turns out they actually were, they're right. So in a non-serotic patient, there's a nice study here, pretty decent size. So soft lodiposphere for treatment experienced patients with ribavirin, F0 to 3, 90%. Okay? And if you look at soft lodiposphere for 12 weeks in treatment naive patients, 94%. Okay, so remember those numbers, 94, 89. And the, it's much cheaper. It's about half the price of uh, soft lodiposphere, depending on how things, of soft valpatosphere, depending on how uh, the pricing is done. Look, there's tremendous variation. Then if you look at soft valve for 12 weeks, remember looking at about 90% with soft lodiposphere for F0 to 3, uh, there's a little bit of an advantage here, um, but not huge. You know, 89 to 91 is probably worth doing. So my patient, F0 to 3, that's a perfectly reasonable thing to say. I spoke with Rory Gandolfi, who's the uh, director for Select Health, who's the uh, payer for this. And he points out, he said, you guys argue with us uh, too much. He said, there's a difference between what you guys approve for your guidance and what's in a contract. He said, a contract uh, is a contract. When somebody signs up for it, they get the coverage that they put, on the, uh, they put the, above their signature. He feels that there's two things that we complain about. You know, one is uh, the cost of medicines or access to medicines, and the other is the cost of premiums. And he said, you really can't have it, have it both ways. So Roy makes the point, generally, they come up with their algorithms based on pricing, which for things like the guidance, we don't consider pricing at any level. You know, so if this is about 
you know, half the price, you know, so you can save thirty, forty thousand dollars with softer diposphere. That's probably a perfectly reasonable thing for that two percent margin in a non-head-to-head -head study. Uh, I think it's not. I wasn't. I didn't reappeal the case. I accepted the softer diposphere for that. But actually, it does not appear anywhere on the guidelines. This is. Yeah, it's true. Maybe it should. I mean, something it bears discussing. This is the resistance-associated variance. Uh, virologists get upset. They tell us to use the term resistance-associated substitutions. Uh, and this looks at, in the Astral 3 study, 84% had no baseline NS5A rats. And their uh, SVR rate, 97%. For people who did have uh, baseline RAVs, okay, which were specific for valpatosphere, there was still an 88% SVR rate. And that's why no one thinks we should look for RAVs in patients who are going to get soft valpatosphere, because they may be there, but it's not a big enough difference to make a difference to uh, what we recommend for treatment. So it is recommended for declatosphere-based therapy, which I'm going to come to next really quickly. So this is, I'm going to skip forward to the declatosphere study, which is the other recommended therapy for genotype 3. And this looks at the overall response to uh, 12 weeks of uh, sofosbuvir and declatosphere. Pretty good overall. Uh, if you look at people uh, with treatment uh, experienced, still pretty good, a slight drop-off for all patients. The bigger drop-off may be for F4. But if you start to add these things together, you know, male gender doesn't do as well. Uh, being older is never good, unfortunately. Uh, higher viral load, a non-CC, IL-2. If you add these together, all of them, you get about a 50%, excuse me, a 50 SVR rate. So these things are important. We generally don't consider them, but we, but we probably should. And if you look at RAVs, remember what they were for about 88% if you had RAVs for valpatosphere-based therapy. If you had the signature Y93H NS5A RAV for declatosphere, 67% or 25% SVR. It's a huge impact. And that's why the label and the guidance says look for RAVs uh, in patients who are going to get declatosphere uh, for, uh, if they have uh, cirrhosis. We actually say for cirrhosis, you should probably do it for no cirrhosis too. They went a bit longer with declatosphere, and the results are a bit better. You know, they went from 73% for cirrhotic patients with 16-week therapy to 89%, and a bit better for treatment-experienced patients as well. So that's why the guidance says a bit longer for patients who have uh, cirrhosis if they're going to get declatosphere. This is a European study. I'm going to skip through again as we get through this. The guidance is easy. It says 12 weeks to 12 weeks of uh, softvel or declatosphere, sofosbuvir compensated cirrhosis 12 versus 24 weeks. Now, remember this number. I circled it for a reason. 24 weeks, sofosbuvir declatosphere is one of the recommendations on our HCV guidelines, which generally a well-respected document. This is a RAB testing writer. So I'm going to skip forward through genotype 2 because it's too easy. We will look at this case quickly because this came up uh, two nights ago. So I added it to these slides. This is a real thing. We had a 32-year-old man has no hepatitis C. He's primary sclerosis and cholangitis. And he's had multiple admissions uh, with uh, septic shock. He nearly died from this most recent one, then ended up in pressors in ICU. Uh, and he's got vancomycin, just an enterococcus, ESBL, uh, producing Klebsiella, and they're getting harder and harder to treat. His MELD score is 28. You need about 35 plus to get an organ uh, in region 5. And again, this patient has no history of hepatitis C. So one of our surgeons, Diane Alonzo, called me, uh, staying in the Westin, and said, I got an offer for our patient. And she, uh, I said, well, can you tell me anything about it? She said, the donor has hep C. They're in Columbus, Ohio, and they had 
uh, been turned down by 873 potential recipients above us. Okay, so turned down by everyone in Illinois, everyone in Minnesota, many people in California, every state in the union who had a program had turned one or more recipients down for this patient. But 28 years old and has hep C, genotype 2, transaminase a little bit up. And this was the, so the surgeon flew out to look at it. I said it could be worth a look. And this is the donor's liver. Okay, so this is a, a brain dead uh, donor. And it looks nice. You know, so the biggest, pre- maybe, <laughs> yeah. who knows? So who would use this, uh, use this liver? The biopsy is fresh frozen and it, it, it just showed you know, normal architecture. You would use it? Anyone else? Yeah, I've always said yes. How many times has this been done, do you think, in the United States? Zero. This is the first time. Yeah. So the patient's already uh, almost ready. They've left the ICU. They're back on the regular floor. Excellent allograft function up to this point. And it's about 100% probability that we can cure the hep C. Would you treat it? When? I'll probably wait for two or three months if he does okay. Uh, Just because hemoglobin's better. It's just a bit easier to treat transplant recipients. When they settle down a bit, they're always a bit anemic. Renal function is a little bit labile. He took a bit of a hit with his septic shock. His creatinine bumped up a bit. So how did they recover? I would use Softvel, yeah. And I promise him that if he gets turned down by insurer for whatever reason, we'll just pay it out of, uh, you know, out of our pocket. It's a beautiful, beautiful liver. So most of you said yes, and I, I would agree with that. So skipping through genotype 2 to the most important slide here. This is the, the cost thing, okay. We complain a lot about the cost of therapy, which is fair. It is expensive. But if you look at the cost per cure, Okay, but everyone, there were no restrictions. We could give this uh, toxic stuff here to anyone we wanted, $250,000 a cure. Bisaprovir brought it down to maybe 140, something like that. Tilaprovir, about the same. The Dipasvir, uh, initial pricing was a bit high, about 120K. Right now, based on uh, average retail, retail cost, it's about a 40% drop per, uh, per SVR. So they are expensive per pill, they're relatively less expensive per, uh, per SVR. And this is why I wanted you to remember that 24 weeks thing. So these are data published by uh, two different groups that didn't highlight properly, I apologize. Uh, this is a comparative regimen for payers who are prepared to share what they're paying for these drugs across the United States. Softbell Pathosphere 74,000, the one that we recommend in the guidance, okay, as equivalent to Softbell Pathosphere, it's something $294,000 average price. So when somebody says, no, we're not going to cover it, it may be a perfectly reasonable thing to say no to because uh, we were completely cost neutral when we came up with the guidelines. But this obviously makes no sense. These are not equivalent drugs in terms of uh, cost effectiveness. Do you think that's fair, Michael? Or? It's tough. Yeah. Would you recommend the Plasphere plus the Cosphere for anybody now that the is out there? You know, in terms of efficacy, it's a perfectly good choice. I've not been able to get it approved once. I don't even write it because of this cost issue. Uh, you know, unless you had somebody completely asleep at the wheel, they, they wouldn't approve it. It's not like it's better. You know, you're not writing it because it's a bit better. It's not quite as good. They're not head-to-head, but numerically not quite as good. And then you're faced with dramatically higher costs. So I, I, I'm not writing it. A corollary to the question I asked earlier about if we had an AIDS cure, what would we do? Another way to think about that is everyone should imagine a price point where if the medicines cost X, there'd be no pushback to curing everyone. I don't know what that number is, but imagine if it were $10,000 treatment costs. Probably would push hard, right? Mm-hmm. 
And, and now we're sort of dealing with all this because of, that was the awkward part about the guidance, just to go yeah. first person on this, is that it, the elephant in the room was the price. And, and, and if everything were equal and the price were much, much lower, like say the $900 treatment course in Egypt that their pricing is, then I think everybody would say, yeah, treat everybody. And there'd be massive public health campaigns, but that's kind of what we're left with. And that's yeah. the story of the, the class all right. here on this. Which is a perfectly good drive. Any, any questions about genotype three uh, or two? Okay. And one of the things that I didn't uh, discuss the interest time, but also getting back to this cost issue, there are now uh, three sites in Japan uh, and Taiwan who combined to treat uh, genotype 3 with just SOF and ribavirin. Uh, I think it was over 100 patients, nearly 100% SVR rate. Something about treating that the IL-28B is very favorable, the BMIs are low. So in those countries, those are still uh, favored therapies. Uh, and if you have a patient you know, who is, uh, I would say, Japanese or Chinese, Taiwanese ethnicity, uh, it's perfectly reasonable. And you might want to check the IL-28B uh, genotype. And if it's CC, based on that pretty large study with multiple large centers, uh, those are encouraging uh, data, but another sort of cost-based consideration. All right, now the, uh, the special population. So we'll start with uh, advanced liver disease. Of course, historically, the easiest to treat patients are over here, and even Child's A, those are pretty easy. This is where the, the margin has become uh, more difficult. So a quick uh, response question. So it's not a trick question. A uh, 67-year-old man, hep C cirrhosis, genotype 1A. And his A is, stands for? Awful. Awful, okay. And B is bad? Better. Better. <laughs> <laughs> uh, listed for liver. <laughs> Uh, listed for liver transplant, so a real case. Uh, 19 was his MELD score. History of paraseal bleeds, uh, had uh, ascites, not too severe. Child uh, so it was 11. Uh, he was treatment inexperienced, and he came in saying he wanted to be treated. He didn't like his odds of on the wait list. Uh, he saw this 20% mortality. He said, treat me. Which of these is a recommended regimen. So semeprevir and declathosphere for 12 weeks, sofosprevir and declathosphere for 24, and again, ignore cost in the answer. Uh, sofosprevir, velpatosphere for 12, softvel with ribavirin for 12, or grisaprevir, albosvir with ribavirin for 12. Okay, so soft declatosphere for 24 was an answer, soft velpatosphere for 12, and these are sort of equally popular, and soft vel plus ribavirin uh, for 12. The, the technically correct answer is soft vel with ribavirin for 12, and this is as a result of something called the Astral 4 study, which we, we published in the New England Journal uh, a few months uh, ago. But the reason for it, you didn't even really have to do the study at some level. Uh, so if you look at these are the agents that you can choose from, okay? And if you look at these are the area under the curve in people with child's pew C 
cirrhosis. Okay, so you can take out any drug that goes up 20, 20 fold in a particular condition. There are no safety data on that. So those are all the uh, protease inhibitors I'm going to say are out. Desabavir, four fold increase. Charles, is that okay? Are you happy with that? Um. I don't think there's any known concentration-related toxicity with that drug, but yeah. a fourfold increase in concentrations worries me. Yeah, I think that's fair. And it's not that good a drug either. Yeah, yeah. So that's probably out. So that leaves us with the NS5As, and then you have to have something which is sort of co-formulated or available with or you can use with uh, SOF. So we used uh, SOFFEL uh, with ribavirin uh, and without ribavirin for 12 or 24 weeks in patients specifically with childs B and C uh, cirrhosis. So Softfell 12, Softfell ribavirin 12, and then Softfell 24. And the winner, maybe against expectations, uh, was just Softfell with ribavirin for 12. It couldn't be beat. Not even a trend for superiority, but for going for 24 weeks. No advantage to it uh, whatsoever. And if you look at genotype 3, it's even a more impressive win for uh, softfell ribavirin for 12. So personally, I, I like ribavirin. because Firstly, I don't mind lowering the dose a bit. And if you have somebody who you really feel like you have to get the uh, dose on board, we just transfuse uh, through it uh, if you think it's important. Your starting dose was 600 for No, in this study, it was weight-based. So the, the solar study, which probably what you're thinking of, which was a, a study with soft ledipasphere, uh, that was with weight-based. This one, they said, let's go uh, full dose. Yeah. So we did see more anemia and more uh, uh, dose production, but they did fine. And once again, the amount of intended dose of ribavirin did not predict uh, outcome in the ribavirin arm. So soft valve ribavirin for DCOMP. So child B, child C, that's your choice. Uh, that, that would be an error. So what it should say, if you're using soft ledipasphere, uh, it should say uh, 600 initially. And then for soft valve, we should say full weight base, because that's what was done. So you may have picked up uh, an error in the guidelines. Yeah, it's just a change between yep. one and three. Yeah, so that it should be the same. You're right. So it should be... I'm going to go back when we finish this. I'm going to go find that and okay. send a note to Tristan uh, uh, to correct it. So thank you for that, uh, that point. This is, I uh, say, looking at the follow-up for these patients. We didn't have that long, so 12 weeks of uh, follow-up, but 84% you know, improved in their MELD score. So this idea that it's a fixed thing, even if you treat patients, they get stuck in this MELD purgatory, that their liver disease just doesn't improve. With only 12 weeks of follow-up, 84% uh, got better. We had a sub-study uh, where we did portal venous pressure measurements before treatment, the endotherapy, and then six months after the endotherapy, including in a group who didn't get any therapy. So they were sort of not, not a placebo group, but they got no therapy group. It was an observational group. And for patients who had more significant uh, portal hypertension, I think the, uh, the number was 12 millimeters of mercury, about two-thirds in that relatively short course of time had uh, a clinically important improvement in uh, portal pressure. So portal pressure can improve. Uh, you can see a drop in uh, MELD score as well. This is that solar study, which was ledipasphere and sofosbuvir. So the number's not quite as good, you know, about 90% SVR rate. But again, 12 weeks, every bit as good as 24 weeks. So 24 is just never the right answer for, uh, for patients with child's B and C cirrhosis. Now, the solar studies were a bit older, a bit longer in the tooth. And each line represents a patient and their follow-up MELD score. So 
Red is they got a bit worse. 16 out of 200 and something got worse. But 183 had an improvement. And some of the improvements are significant drops, in this case, in child pew uh, scores. So when a patient asks you they have cirrhosis, child B, child C, is there a point in treating me? I would say generally with a MELT score up to 20, which was the upper limit for this study, I think it's fine. These are the SAEs. Very few deaths, you know, 5, 1, 5. Uh, and it was interesting in the uh, F0 to 3, child PA post-transplant had the lowest amount. Those are the healthiest patients. The others were childs B and C, where you expect a bit of a higher uh, death rate. There's a concern about renal function, of course, uh, with these patient, patients who have childs B and C cirrhosis. Their renal function is impaired at baseline. Uh, so it looks at creatinine uh, across the uh, course of therapy. And as you can see, there's not even a trend for uh, renal impairment in these studies. This is, I think, only present as an appendix in the, uh, uh, the New England Journal article. There's a study, uh, which is a hep C uh, registry, and this comes out of uh, Spain. And they also looked at a huge number of cirrhotic patients, 564 childs A, 175 childs B and C. This is what they received, and this is the incredible thing. So they're using semeprevir here. They're using another protease inhibitor. So these are potentially hepatotoxic drugs with big increases uh, in uh, area under the curve uh, in this patient group. And the association of paratapravir with uh, liver injury is pretty well established. It has a warning on the label uh, from the FDA uh, for just this reason. Patients did pretty well, uh, but the biggest predictor of how well they do is if you have a higher than 18 MELD score uh, at the time of initiation, you were more likely to have some decompensation in the follow-up period. So degree of sickness at the beginning, perhaps not surprisingly, is a predictor of uh, subsequent decompensation uh, following therapy. So I'm sure many of you recognize this animal. It's the, the honey badger. It's the most fearless animal uh, on earth. Uh, it has the highest, it chases lions, which is what this one's doing here. Uh, it's obviously much smaller, much smaller teeth. It has the highest uh, testosterone concentration per kilogram of weight for any animal, which is why it has this awful judgment that you know, attacking a lion is sort of a good idea. And I feel like treating child's B and C cirrhosis with a protease inhibitor is sort of a honey badger approach. Sometimes it seems fine. On the other hand, uh, sometimes it, it ends in tears. So I would strongly advise against it. You still see it happening in the uh, uh, hep C target study and in the TRIO study. There are still many patients getting uh, protease inhibitors with child's B and C cirrhosis, but I think it's, uh, it's just not necessary. So these are the uh, guidelines for uh, genotype 1 and 4, softvel, ribavirin 12, declatsevir, sofosbuvir 12, or softodipasvir for 12. All of those are perfectly acceptable choices for patients with decompensated disease. And for genotypes 2 and 3, a uh, very similar choice with softvel. Uh, the only thing that's not on here is the softodipasvir. Uh-huh. Okay. Now, there's a new concern about, there were two studies. The groups that have really defined how to manage liver cancer have come from Milan. It's the staging system for liver cancer is called the Milan Criteria. 
Uh, it's been one of the most reproducible staging systems in terms of predicting outcomes. And the other group is Barcelona. And they have a BCLC, which is a Barcelona Clinic Liver uh, Cancer Staging System. And so both of these groups, in April of this year, published papers showing that if you treat it with direct-acting antivirals, you increase the frequency of liver cancer by about 30%. They both saw about the same magnitude of effect. So because it was Barcelona and Milan, everyone sat up, thought this is very interesting, we need to be, be careful. No one really understood the mechanism. But the populations they were describing were people who'd already had liver cancer who had a resection. Okay, these were not people who didn't have it and they were screened. But what people come, came away remembering was that 30% liver cancer within a year of uh, being treated with direct-acting antivirals. So this is a, a UK group that thought, well, let's look at this from our own experience. And this was uh, nearly 700 patients. The frequency of new liver cancers, these are not people who had liver cancer in the beginning, so a different population than Milan and Barcelona. People who were treated and not treated, 4.6 versus uh, 8%. And in general, we expect that frequency to decrease over time as you get further away from SBR. So this is encouraging. The number of patients in the Milan and Barcelona studies together, I think, are less than 100. So this is a much bigger uh, study. And the Barcelona and Milan papers are retrospective. This is a, a separate group uh, looking at pretty much the, the same thing, looking at the impact in, what is it, 344 patients if you didn't have an HCC before, you had about a 3% post-SVR liver cancer risk. But if you did have an HCC before, they saw exactly the same thing that Milan and Barcelona did. It's about 30%. But this is a disease that tends to recur frequently uh, anyway. So I don't know that this is a drug effect. Uh, but the importance of this uh, is in both EASL and ASD guidelines, even if you have an SVR Ultrasound every six months, okay? Uh, Europe, completely different. You have to do it twice a year, not every six months. That was a joke, by the way. <laughs> okay, HIV, hep C co-infection. What are the differences in drug choices and outcomes? It's not, not. So it's really easy. So the recommendations are exactly the same. So far as we know, the efficacy, everything is, is as good. So uh, about 10 million co-infected patients, they tend to get sicker. The most common cause of death if you have HIV infection as a whole is uh, hep C liver disease. This is that study I showed you earlier. 94% of people who are co-infected dying prematurely, uh, an average age at death, 52. And this is just the IN4 study, uh, single-arm study. Everyone got cured who had HIV hep C co-infection, including patients with cirrhosis. So it's actually not that complex. It's all about drug-drug interactions. If you pick the right drugs, uh, you'll be fine. So I'm going to skip through to renal impairment, which is another. point about that is, is when we apply, it seems like we get automatic approval when somebody's co-infected with yep. HIV. And you should. The F3, F4, because the progression is a little faster. Right, right. Yeah, and that progression is a... Say again, please. I said unless you have Illinois Medicaid, that seems denial. Is that a tough one? I'm going, to be, I'm going to show some data in just a minute for Medicaid patients, which I think it might, might help going forward. This is what Michael was referring to. So this is a relatively large group of patients. I forget the number. But if you look at the average fibrosis stage for age, people who are co-infected, people who are co-infected are about one stage further or 10 years further uh, than people who are just mono-infected. So something about HIV infection with hep C co-infection accelerates the fibrosis in, in these patients. Any questions about co-infection? The favorite uh, 
question is if you have a patient on efavirenz, you can almost always swap for raltegravir. I think that's probably the most common clinical scenario that we come up with. Say again, please. Or dolutegravir. Yeah. So renal impairment, this is a very common uh, situation, particularly because dialysis has historically been a big risk factor for hepatitis C infection. So many people on dialysis and with end-stage kidney disease have renal failure. On top of that, there's several mechanisms by which hep C can cause uh, kidney failure, IgA nephropathy, MPGN, cryoglobulinemia, vasculitis. All of these can cause kidney failure too. So this is a 48-year-old woman, stage 4 chronic kidney disease. She's on dialysis. Genotype 1, not specified, uh, not subtyped, I should say. Uh, treatment experience, she'd relapsed following PEG-RIVA. Liver biopsy two years ago, uh, stage 2 uh, disease. Everything looks good. Uh, fibrosis, platelets, ultrasound were normal. GFR is 18 uh, mils per minute, so stage 4. And she has a potential living kidney donor. She wants to get rid of the hep C before she undergoes uh, renal transplantation. Not an unreasonable request. So this is the question, what is the best choice for antiviral therapy for this patient with stage 4 kidney disease, uh, 18 mils per minute GFR? Sofvel for 12 weeks, grisoprevir, elbosvir for 12 weeks, grisoprevir, declatosvir for 12, prod with ribavirin for 12, none of the above because all are contraindicated in end-stage renal disease. We should have a separate set of questions for you guys to, to you do very well with we're, these. We're going to do the Chicago <laughs> television trivia workshop. <laughs> so the, the most popular choice was Grisopivir Elbisvir for uh, 12 weeks, which I think is, is the correct uh, answer, or the best answer, correct might be the wrong word, but certainly the, uh, the best of the available choices on here. And let's review those data. So, Sofospivir is uh, really a, the genius invention of uh, a man called Michael Sophia. He used to work for a company, uh, I think it was called Pharmaset. Uh, and this is not his first rodeo. So he invented uh, Truvada, so it's an ophibramtricitabine, uh, is his. Uh, what else did he have up his sleeve? Uh, about 90% of patients who take any medicine for HIV take one or more drugs invented by the same guy. Uh, so there's an idea that this is a big global effort to treat hep C, HIV, hep B. Significant contribution from, from Michael Sophia. And what he did was he took uh, sophospivir, and the difficulty with the, uh, the triphosphates was it's very hard to get them phosphorylated when they're in the hepatocyte. So he actually pre-phosphorylated it, enabled it to get taken up. Uh, and so the prodrug is uh, 7977, uh, which we can, uh, we can measure. But that's actually sophospivir itself, easy to measure. It then undergoes triphosphorylation within the liver. It's the triphosphate is the active form. You have to get a liver biopsy to know about triphosphate levels, but this is the active form. So the impact of kidney disease on the triphosphate, totally uh, unknown. It goes up, goes down, no one has a clue. It's then converted to the 007 metabolite following uh, a dephosphorylation, uh, and you have renal excretion of the 007. So we can measure the 007, we can measure sophospivir. We have no way of measuring the triphosphate. But our concern has been the 007 metabolite goes up significantly uh, in renal disease because it's renally excreted. So there's a three, uh, 
adaptive trial design, three-arm adaptive trial design with sofosbuvir, 200 milligrams once a day with ribavirin. These are people with end-stage kidney disease. 400 milligrams once a day with ribavirin, and then soft adiposphere. The final study has not been reported yet. These are the first two uh, arms of that. So sofosbuvir with 200 milligrams a day with ribavirin, it's about 60%, less than 60%, 40% uh, SPR rate. This is obviously unacceptably low. So the sofosbuvir 200 milligram dose, whatever happens to the 007 metabolite, is probably not uh, doing well for the triphosphate intrahepatically. We don't know. It's just a pure guess. If you go up to the standard dose of soft with ribavirin, this is exactly what was happening when all we had was soft ribavirin, 60% SPR rate. If you look at the levels of these uh, agents, so this is a 007 metabolite, six-fold increase. Remember, that's a renally excreted metabolite. Uh, and for sofosbuvir itself, which is the prodrug, the monophosphorylated prodrug, about 1.4 times uh, increase. These patients are very closely followed. They're getting weekly echocardiograms, all sorts of intensive stuff. They seem to be doing fine, uh, but we really don't know what the impact of these higher levels uh, of the 007 metabolite uh, is. So this is not a recommended therapy. The label says don't use it in patients with uh, less than 30 mils per minute. The guidance uh, says the same thing. And part of the reason is there's two good choices. So this is the prod regimen, so paratacrovir with ritonavir boosting, uh, ombitisvir and dosabivir for just 12 weeks uh, with or without ribavirin. And the response rate in both arms 90%. So you can give this regimen to genocide one patients, 90% SVR rate. You don't actually need uh, the ribavirin, uh, as it turns out. So really easy to give drug. Of course, there's the usual drug-drug interaction concerns because of the uh, ritonavir, but if you're mindful of those, uh, you should be fine. And this is, I think, probably the, the best regimen because of its ease of use. Uh, this was grisoprevir with albusvir uh, for uh, 12 weeks. And there was a placebo arm then with subsequent treatment for the same uh, 12 weeks. So Grisoprevir Elbosphere for 12 weeks in patients with genotype 1, uh, stage 4 and 5 kidney disease. This is end-stage kidney disease. Almost everyone had an SBR, even higher than with the, uh, the prod regimen, and you don't have the drug-drug interactions. So I would say this is the, uh, the best choice for patients with uh, genotype 1. Uh, disease. Very easy to give. Just 12 weeks of therapy, nearly 100% uh, SVR. No important drug-drug uh, interactions. Any questions or thoughts on? No. Right. That's a good question. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it didn't seem to, it wasn't a huge study, but it's not bad either, 116, 122 patients. I had patients in this study, and it was interesting. That, uh, we told them that there was a placebo arm, but it wasn't, uh, you would eventually get treated. Patients in all groups, they all thought they were on placebo because they really couldn't feel that they were, they were on the drug. And many of these patients had tried uh, you know, ribavirin interferon before. They just couldn't believe that there was a, essentially no side effect uh, therapy. Okay. So finally, the biggest issue, this is why most patients don't get therapy. Please. With the Elsevier for Sofavir, does anyone here in the audience use that agent in post transplant patients? No. Not at all. Except to post transplant patients. I know it's not recommended. Because there was no data, that, that was only, it, it's probably fine, but there's no data. And with the uh, protease inhibitors like semeprevir, 
Uh, there are concerns about increasing, say, cyclosporin interaction. This is PGP and so O1. It, it increases tacrolimus concentrations. Yeah. So you have to do drug monitoring to decrease your tacrolimus. That can be good. Is that right? You should absolutely write that up. Yeah. I just wanted to know if anyone else has been doing this. And they're all doing it. No. Um, yeah. One just started actually on Tuesday, the post-kidney. So you're doing good so, so far. So we have a honey badger with us. This is great. Yeah, it's, it's, I think it should be fine. Yeah, the, the only concern is with uh, the, the calcineurin inhibitors, because that, that's what we saw unexpectedly with semaprevir. Uh, and it was a six-fold increase in cyclosporin levels with semaprevir that no one saw coming. Yeah. Okay, so this is the biggest reason why we cannot get patients treated as fiscal impairments, the lack of uh, coverage. I think it's worth uh, discussing a little bit. So when you're putting together your appeal letters, first bear in mind that no one actually reads them. Okay? They're algorithmic, and there's no reason to. I think for the first round of appeal, they, they essentially, if it's not on the algorithm, you're not going to succeed. So if the patient signed up for coverage for something that's not, uh, it does not include what you're prescribing, you're not going to win. So figure out first what's covered by the, uh, the group uh, who covers your, your patient. Having said that, this is uh, a good study from Fred Gordon, published in Hepatology not very long ago looking at the healthcare costs per year according to stage of disease. So if you can maintain patients non-cirrhotic or incompensated disease, $22,000 per year. If you wait until patients have decompensated cirrhosis or liver cancer or liver transplant, as high as $145,000 per year. So now that the cost of these drugs are coming down to $25,000 for some payers for a course of therapy, uh, it might be even in one year. Somebody asked the question, how long does it take to make that up? For some patients, it could be just one year uh, of therapy. So uh, it, it, it's something which I put in now. I, I quote Fred's paper. Uh, some can include a PDF, uh, for example, for earlier stage patients. But again, if the contract doesn't include uh, early stage therapy, you, you, they may or may not uh, get it covered. So why, why all the denials? Now, this looks at the financial disincentive for payers to treat our patients. How long does the average American citizen stay on any particular health insurance plan before they change? I looked it up earlier this morning. It's just under five years, okay? So if you look at the cumulative net benefit in, in billions, okay, early treatment cost per private patient, 83 billion by 2019, it will not be until 2030 before the payers uh, break even. And this is mirrored, essentially, for an individual. I showed the data of Fred Gordon earlier, but it's not generally uh, speaking true. A, a company will bear the cost of its 100,000. Uh, the average difference for patients as a whole with hep C is around 12,000 a year. So it would take six, seven, eight, nine years to make that up. So knowing your patient probably won't be with your plan in five years, there's a significant disincentive uh, to, you know, to cover therapy in the earlier stages. And I also think it's actually been pretty wise to not cover uh, in, in some sense. If you have stage 0, 1, 2 disease, nothing bad is going to happen to that patient. And if they had wasted, which a lot of them have now, uh, they now have access to therapy at much lower cost, which is actually good for, I think, society as a whole, not to spend more than we need to uh, on any particular aspect of uh, healthcare. I don't mean to seem cruel by saying that, but I think it's just sort of it's a reality in that spending have we done it in 2013, 145,000 for soft riba for 24 or something like that, compared to soft adipospir now with these much lower costs that they're being reported? Uh, I think it makes actually pretty good sense to have had people on the sidelines with much earlier stage uh, disease. So I think keep the, uh, the pen in its sheath uh, for uh, the earlier stage disease appeals. 
And here's something else to bear in mind. There's 1,500 different plans out there, but 83% of them are put together by these five different insurers. Four of these five are looking to merge. There will be two or three uh, insurers. Right now, it, the Federal Trade Commission is trying to block these two mergers, but we'll end up with just three insurers. Beg your pardon, we'll provide 83% uh, of coverage. So they're going to be very similar in terms of what they approve uh, and, and disapprove. So restrictions to treatment, interestingly, are not commercial payers. So we heard a lot about you know, writing letters to uh, commercial payers, uh, et cetera. Only 10% of denials come from commercial payers. The huge majority is Medicaid, okay, which is a state government payer. Somebody mentioned Illinois Medicaid uh, earlier. I hear that's a big issue here. Is that correct? Yeah. So this, is, this may be changing uh, this year, okay? and this is the reason. So this is, comes from CMS. If your state receives government uh, subsidy for their Medicaid program, which Illinois does, Okay, they become subject to the CMS charter if they accept those CMS dollars. Now, in the CMS charter, it's illegal to withhold therapy that is prescribed according to the FDA package insert. Okay, so this will be a new source of trying to get access for patients. Now, whether a nearly bankrupt state is going to do anything about this, you know, who knows? You have to sort of take it away from the firefighters' pension plans to pay for Hep C therapy. So I don't know if it wins or not. Uh, but technically, this is a whole new way to argue for uh, access uh, to therapy. And they specifically said that it is unreasonable to deny coverage according to fibrosis scores, abstinence from drug and alcohol use, et cetera. So these should not be ongoing reasons to deny access to therapy. And this is now published nicely. It's available online, so you can put this into your appeal if you wish to, uh, to do that. Yeah, well, you know, if they take uh, federal dollars, which, again, I don't know about Indiana. In Illinois, I check they do. Uh, then technically they shouldn't be able to do that. Because yeah. the CMS charter right in there is you cannot limit access to drugs that are prescribed within the, uh, within the FDA-approved label. Illinois doesn't recognize that I'm oh, sure. Most people are unaware of it is my guess. I cite that in my medical You do? In the most Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think if if you uh, if you only write appeals, I'm sorry. Uh, it was like Friday in Illinois, so a week ago they decided to start covering F3. Where they said they're going to, because right now I'm only F4. Right. Hmm. Yeah, I think not covering F0, 1, and 2 within a constrained set of resources. It's probably a not unreasonable thing to do. There's a group in Britain, we were talking about this at dinner last night, called the National Institutes for Clinical Excellence. And it's sort of like the FDA. And what they do is, that's, uh, they did this with serafinib, which is a liver cancer therapy. It extends life by about 12 weeks, and there's a lot of side effects with it. They have a decision basis that is twofold. One is, do the clinical trials show a benefit? Is this thing effective and safe? And then the second decision is, are we going to pay for it based on the price that we're being given? And for serafinib, they said yes to the first thing. Doctors can prescribe this, but no, we're not going to cover it as part of the National Health Service. So that, that sort of puts a pressure on, I, I think, companies to be moderate uh, in their price up front. So something like that might help in the, in the future. Now, there's a sense that hep C is dying. You know, this is uh, going to be something that if any of our children go into uh, healthcare in one form or another, they'll hear these stories about this virus, hep C, that used to be out there. Sorry, Michael. 
It's not dying. Uh, the frequency of hep C new infections right now in some states is as high as it was in the baby boom. So it's actually, we will probably be seeing as many patients in the future as we do now. And if you don't go into the areas where the, the infections are occurring, which are active uh, recreational drug users, you'll never uh, clear it. So this is a 2002 demographic for the prevalence of hep C according to age. So this is the baby boom here, okay, 70% of hep C in the baby boom. This is now Massachusetts demographic. Okay, this is nearly as tall as the baby boom. Okay, so 600,000 Americans injected heroin in 2015, uh, it's estimated. Uh, and that number seems to be uh, increasing. So if you withhold from people who are actively drug using, for example, uh, we have no hope of getting on top uh, of this infection. These are the most affected states. Uh, can anyone spot Illinois on here? It would be one of the red ones. It's the only time Illinois appears as a red state, I think. And the emerging epidemics, these are the non-urban persons who inject drugs. Uh, it's really it's a national uh, phenomenon. It's not just an East Coast, West Coast, urban, non-urban uh, problem. It's a greater than 200% increase uh, in Illinois and many other states. Other countries, including uh, Germany and Australia, have monitoring plans for people who register as active drug users. They get clean needles, and they get every three-monthly uh, hep C PCR test. And if they test positive, they get treated uh, early according to, to standard uh, algorithms. Their hope is to sort of drain the swamp of infections, you know, so just get rid of the virus where it's coming from, which is going to be the prisons uh, and people who are actively uh, drug using. The reason why I think people don't like to cover this, if you look at Everyone else, 2% of the U.S. population, probably less now, probably 1.4% actually have hep C infection. It's really a disease of the marginalized, whether it's people who are hospitalized, injecting drug users, injecting drug users for 10 years or more, 90% prevalence uh, of, of hep C. Just with a medical history, you can, uh, if, the, if you get the, an honest answer, you can really have a good idea of how likely somebody is to have hep C. These patients generally have low amounts uh, of insurance coverage. They're often in Medicaid or uninsured uh, programs. But this is where the action will be. If we really look to make hep C uh, something of historic interest, we're going to have to get access uh, to, these, to these other groups. And finally, which gets to Mike's beginning point, I'm glad you made that point about imagine there was a treatment where you could cure HIV or almost anything else, which is a major uh, source of mortality. If you take 60 other, the 60 other leading infectious diseases as causes of death in the United States, all 60, add them together, Hep C causes more deaths per year than all 60 combined, and that's HIV, it's uh, TB, uh, et cetera, hepatitis B. Add them all together, hep C is worse. Okay? Yeah, we have a cure for it, so this is a, it's a very frustrating thing to be seeing patients turning up in clinic with a uh, disease that uh, you know, hopefully uh, should be preventable uh, in the future. So my final slide is, and why we didn't show too many of the bar graphs of results, is the hep C has become sort of boring in a happy way. You know, it's 96% versus 93%, you know, 94 versus 89. I mean, who cares? This is Michael Phelps just out touching uh, in the Beijing Olympics. I don't even remember this race. It looked from the surface like he lost it, but he's actually just barely out touching him. And I feel like all the hep C comparisons now are a little bit like this. They're really close. Uh, somebody gets a gold medal, somebody else gets a silver, but they're actually both excellent athletes. And we have a lot of excellent drugs uh, at our disposal now. Don't worry too much about what the payers will cover or not cover. They're probably going to get access to, if they get access to anything, it'll be a really good choice these days. That's all I have. Well, thank you.